You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast that celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm your host, British diplomat, Hannah Young. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple. I'm your host, Hannah Young, British diplomat and Deputy Consul General to New York. Sir Alex Halliday is a British geochemist the founding dean of the Columbia Climate School and director of the Earth Institute, also at Columbia University. Alex joined the Earth Institute in April 2018 after spending more than a decade at the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Oxford. He is currently a fellow of the Royal Society and foreign associate of the US National Academy of Sciences. He's received an impressive number of scientific awards for his work and was given a knighthood from Her Majesty the Queen in the 2019 New Year Honours for Services to Science and Innovation. Alex, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Alex, I'd love to start by hearing about your career journey so far and um, as a part of that story, how you came to be in, in New York. Basically, I started off as a geologist. I was I grew up in Cornwall in southwest England. Uh, as a teenager. My aunt, who was looking after me at the time, uh, sort of took me around various mine heaps in Cornwall because she thought this would be the kind of thing a teenager would really get interested in collecting minerals. Of course, teenagers are not that interested in that, but I did get fascinated by it. Eventually decided that what I wanted to do was to become a geologist and go to university and maybe join a mining company or something like that eventually. So I went to Newcastle, Towards the end of my degree, I realized that actually a lot of the jobs in mining weren't that interesting. And I was offered the chance to do a PhD in the physics department in isotopic dating, which in those days was pretty early in terms of its te- the techniques. And this was around dating mineral deposits and finding out how old they are. So I worked on all kinds of mineral deposits in Europe, for my PhD. And then I got the chance to go to Scotland and do a postdoc there and then become a faculty member at the Scottish University's Research and Reactor Centre. And there I took off in completely new directions and started to work on volcanoes and the magmatic rocks in the Earth's interior. And then I went to Michigan and built a big lab there. I was there for 12 years and gradually got more interested in the issues of climate change. While I was at Michigan, I got the chance to get the the first instrument of a a new kind that was being developed in the UK, which allowed us to do wonderful isotopic measurements on all parts of the periodic table that really had not been possible before. And this changed my career and I got very interested in the early solar system and how planets formed because we had new techniques for figuring out how the moon formed and when it formed and all these things, how Mars accreted. But also uh, I got very interested in the history of the oceans and erosion and the surface history of the earth. So I went from being a geologist interested in the geology of the planet and the earth and how it works to somebody who just looks at the recent history and the very, very beginning of the, the, um, the planet. And I went to Zurich after that, built a big team there and then ended up at Oxford. And while I was at Oxford, I got very interested in the whole issue of how do you actually get Uh, work going in the area of climate and uh, in particular the uh, the need to work in a transdisciplinary way you need you can't just fix climate with science you need to actually bring in some people who are working policy 
the the roles of energy and everything are massively important. So this became a major theme of what I was doing. I became the head of science and engineering there. And then when I was vice president of the Royal Society, I did the same kind of thing, but providing advice to government in this area and helping the Royal Society uh, with that work. And then when I moved to New York, it was basically because the place that I thought was the best place in the world for studying climate and sustainability was Columbia University, which is not just because it's the, the greatest um, university in this area in terms of its research, but it's also because of the Earth Institute, which is a very transdisciplinary organization, uh, because it's based in New York City, which has got Wall Street and the head of finance around the world, uh, but it's also got the United Nations. It's also a, a place that has been impacted by climate change. You know, you can't think of a better place to be doing this. And so my life has changed quite dramatically in terms of my research, but also the things I'm interested in from the point of view of, if you like, leadership of science. You've had such a, a, a varied set of interests and experiences from different parts of the US and the UK. And, and you said that you gradually got interested in the issues around climate change. I was going to ask, when do you remember really waking up to the importance of climate change? I mean, was it a gradual thing as you learned more about the Earth's core and about coastal erosion and the impact on oceans? Or, or was there actually a, a kind of, you know, an epiphany moment where you woke up and thought, oh, my Godfathers, this is the thing that is going to, you know, topple everything else if we don't sort it out? So I think the, the there are two things, I think, which were really important for me. Well, three things. One was when I was at ETH in Switzerland, the president asked me to come to New York to look at this place called the Earth Institute. This was back in 2003. And I met up with Jeffrey Sachs, who was the previous director. And I was I was really struck by the way the the future of the planet was 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 a, and people on the planet was being tackled in such an, in a, an imaginative way, but also with a degree of earnestness that was needed for the uh, for the, the nature of the topic. People, you know, really started to recognize that the planet was under threat and humankind was under threat, and we needed to get society uh, working on this um, together. And then when I moved to Oxford, I basically, I was asked to, to become a trustee of the Natural History Museum. I was asked to become a uh, council member for the Natural Environment Research Council. And I got very involved in the work they were doing. And in particular, I got to recognize the seriousness of the issues, the, the precision of the modeling that was being developed, what needed to be done to improve it, to try and understand what the future of the planet might look like and how serious this was. And then I think the, the third thing that really struck me, and if you like, that made a big difference, was the, the Paris IPC, you know, the Paris COP 2021, uh, which actually you suddenly realized the world was getting together to try and do something about this. And they'd set, set out um, in fairly clear terms, the dangers of going above one and a half degrees or two degrees. And of course, there's been much more work done on this since then. Uh, seeing the scale of, of agreement on this, that something had to be done, was impressive. But everybody then sort of went away thinking, well, this is great, but how on earth are we actually going to do this? This is such a big challenge. This is a, a monumental change. Every aspect 
of the way we live is tied to carbon and using carbon. And we actually have to figure out a total, totally different way of organizing society. Technology has got to be different. The energy above all has got to be different. The land use has got to change. Our transportation systems have got to change. Cities have got to be fundamentally different. The oceans have got to be dealt with differently. All of these things are, uh, it's the biggest transformation you could ever imagine in the history of humankind. And we've only got 10 years to, you know, really get things underway. I think that really galvanized a lot of action for a number of people. It certainly impacted me and made me aware that if there was something I could do that would actually in any way help uh, to get people thinking about this and working on it, then um, I should I should basically get behind it and see what I could do. So when I came to, when I was asked if I would come to Colombia, I said, if you want someone who will focus on climate and energy in particular, then I'm happy to to come over and, and be part of it, which is why I'm here. And I want to come on to talk a little bit more about your work at Columbia in a moment. Uh, but just picking up on your, uh, your point about um, kind of moments in the sand that galvanize political and public action. I mean, you've been working in this field a lot longer than, you know, climate change as a household issue that people really do think about in a day-to-day -day way. How have you seen the public debate change over the time that you've been working in this field? And, and I guess I'm hinting at the fact that it is much more prevalent, but from, from where you sit, particularly from an academic perspective, how have you seen the debate shift over, over the years? So I think the interesting thing is that there was, um, I think there was a, well, I think that the debate for a long time was, was clouded by scientists um, being really concerned not to over-egg the evidence. And so everyone was cautious and they talked a lot about um, uncertainty uh, in projections, et cetera. Uh, because they didn't want to be accused of saying something that couldn't be justified by the data. And the climate system is so complex that that actually does mean there is quite a lot of inherent uncertainty associated with trying to predict the future of the planet and, and what will really happen in detail. That nervousness about being able to say too much, plus the fact that, you know, some noticeable uh, establishment broadcasting organizations called the BBC would bring in people like climate skeptics alongside climate advocates who were actually trying to present the scientific evidence. It just meant that we had, there was not as much progress as should have been made, I think. Then there was also fairly active uh, work undertaken by people for certain industries who really wanted to try and hold back action on climate change. And that's very well documented. And this actually is clearly actually influenced even school education in America, where in certain states, there was a direct involvement in trying to change the curriculum uh, to prevent climate being, being talked about. This has changed tremendously. And it's partly because there are such powerful, visceral lines of, you know, pieces of evidence now that everybody can see the climate is changing. So we've been talking about it for something like 40 years, but now you actually can see, yes, it is changing. And actually, it's doing what people said it would do. And people are waking up to the horrendous effects and the fact that we're only at 1.1 degrees of warming so far. You know, if we carry on our current path, we're going to be at 
more than three degrees probably by the end of the century. And that is going to be catastrophic for society. That sense of catastrophe and the fact that we shouldn't be cautious about this, we should actually be really getting everybody concerned about it and actually taking action in a crisis way. I think that's been really important. I think the other thing, of course, that's been huge is young people. Young people have really decided to say, you know, the grown-ups aren't really grown up. We're going to be the grown-ups and we're actually going to say something about how important this is for our future and how concerned we are to uh, make sure that we have a, a world that is sustainable and livable going forward. So they've been inspirational for many people in terms of not just in terms of what they do on the street, but the fact that they talk to their parents about it and their parents actually sort of say, well, actually, well, yes, I should be doing more. So there's been a, a groundswell of change. Different countries have been different, of course. In America, uh, this was a very political issue for many years. It's increasingly a bipartisan issue where there is, you know, majority of Republicans recognizing there are things that need to be done about it. Um, uh, but I do think that um, trying to move this forward and move forward with this in a way that actually brings these different communities and, if you like, political parties to agreement that we should do things is like the biggest thing we really need to make progress on. Anyway, so that's how I feel the narrative has changed quite a lot. It's it's really interesting to your point about uh, young people, how climate change feels like one of those issues where actually the the kind of the, the groundswell of community engagement has actually provided upwards pressure on the political system in a way that you don't always see, you know, with other with other issues. And you've 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 got both the sort of the top down imperative from the politics of it. And you've also got the groundswell of support from, you know, from communities. And I guess it's then about how you bring the two together to to come up with the solutions. But I wonder perhaps if we can talk a little bit more about your work at Columbia. Uh, you've done a huge amount there to to transform the nature of climate change and the role of the academic community. And as you were saying earlier, the, the, the transdisciplinary nature of it. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about the Earth Institute, what you're trying to achieve through, through, through its establishment. Yes, yeah, so the Earth Institute was established over 25 years ago to bring together academics in different fields to tackle the issues of sustainability. And um, it's it's been amazing. It did a lot of trailblazing work, in particular in education, developing the first degree programs in areas of sustainability and the environment in, in, in certain subject areas and really raising the profile. Of course, Jeff Sachs was great because he was also connected to the United Nations. And so a lot of the, the work that was going on in the Earth Institute was plugged into there. There was, of course, Hurricane Sandy in New York, and a lot of the Earth Institute academics got involved with helping New York prepare for disaster. And then when disaster happened, providing input to New York on um, what to do in the future. And we still do that to, the, to this day, as do other universities around New York. We're not alone in that. Um, but I think that's um, focus on trying to act uh, both locally and globally uh, on the big issues of climate um, has been, you know, immensely important facet of, um, and, and other aspects of sustainability, has been an immensely important facet of, of what makes the Earth Institute and Columbia so special. In um, 
in saying that there is a there's one bit of the earth institute that is particularly big and that's the lamont doherty earth observatory which is a, a huge geosciences organization which did amazing work it it was the you know it was uh, incredible from the point of view of the earliest days since the 1950s when it was involved in developing the theory of plate tectonics figuring out how the earth worked building a seismometer to land on the moon during the apollo uh, program uh, but it you know increasingly in the 70s and 60s and 70s it started to get involved in the issue of the oceans and climate and they were the first to predict el nino actually come up with a mathematical model that allowed them to say you know where it will happen how it will happen and where it will affect which communities will be affected around the world and mark kane who's you know a close colleague now of mine was the person who did this and he immediately realized that you know apart from being a brilliant scientist and doing a brilliant piece of science he realized this was going to be important for people and so the earth institute uh, includes the international research institute for climate and society it includes over 20 centers uh, but this iri as it's called has been incredibly powerful from the point of view of taking um, meteorological records in different countries and helping local communities local uh, governments uh, and uh, national governments understand what they need to do to prepare for the impacts of El Nino and the climate variability coming from that. So what we're doing now with what we're calling the climate school, which we're just getting started with, um, is actually trying to scale that up in other ways to have impact around the world, taking the science and providing advice to people around the world. So that's pretty amazing. I think the Earth Institute does that um, incredibly well, that, that way of operating. And evolving into the climate school, which we are today, we're looking to do the same kind of thing around climate change more broadly with communities around the world. Thank you for taking me to my next question, because I was going to ask you about the climate school. I think it got established in 2020. Is that right? Or you announced that you were setting it up in 2020, which is obviously a very yes, difficult right. time for anyone to be establishing yep. something. But but tell us a bit more about why you think a climate school is needed and, and perhaps what some of the unique faculties are about it i mean the first thing to say is if you've got the earth institute why do you need a climate school if you you know if you, and the answer is really that american universities their most powerful entities are their schools i mean it's an incredible legacy of many universities that schools become almost quasi-independent organizations operating within a, a an overall university governance of course but they are given uh, the opportunity to really develop the field, the subject they're interested in, recruit their faculty, grant them tenure, uh, but also go ahead and actually, of course, get students, develop education programs, graduate those students, and actually, to some extent, shape the whole field going forward in a way that the Earth Institute couldn't quite do. So the Climate School gives us an opportunity to think about what do we need for the future and and how do we actually build a school around this that could be really powerful it's a bit like 100 years ago when people realized that uh, the then flu pandemic uh, wasn't just a uh, you know a problem that could be solved by medicine you actually needed to think about the environment in which people were getting infected and that brought about the development of schools of public health and so uh, 100 years on, we're just celebrating our centenary of our School of Public Health in 
at Columbia. We recognize the importance of this field. And so it's a bit the same. We're looking forward. We realize that actually climate change is the big existential threat of society and for the world and the related aspects of the, the you know, the impacts on the biosphere. This has to be tackled as a as, with a sense of urgency, gravitas, and also with an in, just an intensity of, of energy to really see what can be done to, to change things before it gets catastrophic. So that's the thing that we're doing with the climate school. We, we're building the, the most powerful entity we can inside a university and developing education programs, research programs, but also figuring out how we can have impact in the world partnering with other people like we're, we're the official university partners for New York Climate Week, for example, getting involved with COP uh, and the, the meetings there, a variety of ways, but also working with particular governments and, and cities actually around the world to see what we can do to provide expert advice, support, convening, et cetera, um, that could actually have a real impact in terms of climate crisis. And actually, I was going to ask you, and, and maybe this is an unfair question, because I think you possibly already answered it in the way that you are approaching the challenge. But I was going to ask about, you know, given the urgency of, of the need for climate action and, and climate solutions are evolving every day, you know, how can the academic world, the research community kind of keep pace with that? How can you transform the way that research happens not to dial down the importance of quality and fact checking and what have you, but how do you how do you keep pace with the need to have climate action and find climate solutions now? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question because there are two aspects to it. One is that universities and schools are not are not sort of the entities you normally think of in terms of rapid re rapid reaction force. You know, it's really going to get in there and make a difference. And when we first brought together a group of people to talk about the idea of a climate score, this was one of the things people said, look, you know, you need to actually be flexible. You've got to think about what can we do right now and how can we actually make an impact because we really need to move fast on the climate crisis. So we're designing the school that way. So it's actually got, of course, it'll have a certain structure to it around subject areas, uh, just like any other school. But the idea is to have a structure that reflects the major issues that we're facing and thinks, thinks about the subjects that need to be important in the future. So, for example, we will have a, um, you know, a division that will focus on social systems and justice and, and the climate, climate aspects of that, a division that focuses on climate analytics and providing the data for people to understand what the future of the planet looks like something that focuses on decarbonization, they're all those things. But they're also going to put to get these different parts of the school, get them, get them to work on specific problems. So one of the biggest problems is, is food security. Climate's going to have a massive impact on the breadbaskets of the world at the same time as populations are increasing, standard of living is increasing. How do we actually come up with food for the world that is healthy and at the same time doesn't trash the planet? And so there's, that's one example. It involves pretty much every aspect, you know, every subject of the climate school. It involves decarbonization as well as social systems and justice. So there's um, a lot of aspects that have to be brought together to really focus on that issue. So we're getting to work on that really fast. One of our colleagues, uh, Cynthia Rosenzweig, has just been uh, awarded the World uh, Food Prize, which is fantastic news. We're building that area. We're recruiting new people in that area, trying to get to work very quickly to have an impact in that area. But I mean, there are plenty of other things. And one of the things we've talked about 
which we're just starting to build, is a policy impact hub, which will actually allow us to provide an interface for policymakers to talk with us. And we can provide the, if you like, the, the academics who can provide advice. We've talked about getting our law colleagues. We've got one of the strongest groups in the world working on climate law. They are providing advice to people. I mean, I was just down and meeting up with people in London the other day, Willis Towers Watson, and they're working with Columbia University people in law who are working on climate. And so Mike Gerard in particular, and uh, who does amazing work. So we have these people, we have wonderful people working on energy policy, Jason Bordoff in particular. These people are actually not interested just in doing scholarly work. Um, if we just basically do research, publish great papers, you know, train students, put them out in the world, we will have failed as a climate school. We have to also have impact in the world with what we're doing. And so the idea is very much around building those vehicles for allowing us to have impact. And you talked about your work as part of that supporting government. And I was going to ask you about the, the politics of climate change. In the recent um, bipartisan agreement in the US, potentially biggest piece of US climate legislation ever uh, and hugely welcome. But in your view, are decision makers stepping up fast enough or, or do they need to go further? The, um, the answer is no. I mean, I think people haven't woken up to just how serious this really is. And it's partly because it always seems way off in the future and it always seems a little uncertain how, will it, how it will affect my own particular life. But now people are talking seriously about global catastrophe. And that sounds like you're scaremongering. Scientists haven't talked about so much in the past because they just wanted to get people to make an agreement about limiting things to a certain degree. And of course, what we're finding is that there isn't that level of commitment being made. And even the commitments that are being made, people aren't really acting on as fast as they need to. And so we are, people are starting to think about, okay, look, if we can't get this done, what is the world really going to look like by the end of the century? And it's terrible. It's really, really terrible. And I think people haven't recognized that there's going to be widespread societal breakdown. And there are major issues for the security of our countries, as well as the, the livelihoods of individuals. There's going to be a lot of people who lose their lives as a result of this in different parts of the world as a result of the catastrophic events that will, will be unleashed. We're talking about temperatures that haven't been seen on this planet in the history of modern humans. Uh, civilization has never existed in this state before. And we're ramping it up so fast, so aggressively, that we've got no real analogues for how this is going to play out, except that it's bound to get really bad. And we think that as, we're, as the as the planet changes, there will be new ways in which we see uh, ice sheets melting faster than we thought they were going to melt, etc. because we hadn't understood the system well enough. So people are increasingly beginning to realize that it could get much, much worse. And there's a, there's a significant likelihood that we are looking at uh, a terrible uh, effect on the for the future of, of humankind. People should be really, really worried about this, you know. And we saw that only last month in the UK with the uh, the heat waves, which is now becoming such a more regular occurrence. And that's without question caused by climate change. Such a big problem. And people haven't woken up, I don't think, to how serious it is for America, but also for the rest of the world, of course. Mm. What encourages you about the future? 
which I know <laughs> is a very difficult question perhaps to answer, but how do you balance the realities of the trajectories that we've just been talking again about and, you know, the likely impact that it will have on society with hope for the future? I am optimistic, and I know it's partly my job to be optimistic, but actually I am optimistic. One is that humans are incredibly clever <laughs> and good at coming up with brilliant solutions for things. And if you look at the history of catastrophes, you know, there have been a number of them where humanity has come up with um, solutions. Many of the solutions for the climate problem, the technological solutions, we kind of know what they need to look like. We haven't necessarily got all the way we need to in terms of figuring out how to make them work. And we haven't certainly haven't put in place the, the systems, the global governance needed to really draw down CO2 out of the atmosphere at scale or, or, or change our energy systems as swiftly as we need to. Although, of course, increasingly we're thinking in those terms because of the energy security issues. So actually, I think the, the people are very creative and thoughtful and imaginative. People are really inspired by this issue. And there's money going into it now by the federal government and other um, and federal governments globally, as well as entrepreneurs and businesses wanting to invest in this area. There's There's lots of room for, I think, optimism on that front. The second thing that makes me um, get gives me cause for optimism is cities. I mean, what we've seen is the sort of failure of national governments. But boy, the cities are actually great, and it's where the the mayor has to you know confront the voters on what's happening in their neighbourhood, and they do take it seriously, and they have been thinking, including in New York, very imaginatively about how do we make our contribution reduce our carbon emissions but also adapt you know in imaginative ways and 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 actually come up with quite bold policies for for doing that and then the third thing that gives me ground for optimism is young people young people are great i mean it's like they they're so energized and they're enthusiastic and of course universities are full of young people it's brilliant to see them standing up as leaders and when we see the students coming through columbia university many of whom are vastly smarter than I am, you know, who really want to do something about these issues and and change the world. That gives you tremendous cause for optimism. Thank you. Final question. And I imagine, given the nature of your work and your understanding of the impact of climate change, life can feel quite heavy a lot of the time for you. So what does Alex Halliday do to relax? And sub-question, given this podcast is focused on New York, what in particular do, do you enjoy doing in New York City? So what I do, <laughs> so what I enjoy doing in New York City is partly, I mean, I think New York is, you know, such a fabulous place. It's just like, it's full of life. There's a buzz about it. There's a grittiness about it that I really love. And the, the people are super bright, opinionated and all the rest of it. Such a cultural feel to the place that I think it makes it pretty much unique. I mean, uh, uh, there are other great cities I like as well, but I think this place is marvelous. My wife and I have really enjoyed uh, going to a number of things like theater and opera and musical events. In terms of me getting my kicks out of New York, what I like to do is to cycle up and down Manhattan. We do a lot of walking. We do tons of walking, but also we just like exploring in different places. I mean, the history of this place is so interesting. That's the kind of stuff we I tend to do. Cycling is very good in that sense. So, Alex, thank you for everything you're doing to help shape the climate debate and uh, climate action at Columbia. And thank you very much for coming on Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed talking to you.
You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.